Welcome to the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lewis. Who is the spiritual leader of your family? Is it you, your pastor, your spouse, the media? Do you know? I did. And sadly, no one was taking responsibility to lead our family. Well, friends, someone needs to take that job, and that man is you. You may not feel qualified, and some days I don't. With the help of God and a community of dads helping each other on their journey, you can be the leader your family deserves. We welcome you to the Journey of the Christian Dad podcast. All right, welcome to the Christian Dad podcast. I am so excited to have our guest, Robert Cujo Teshner, here with us today. I've been wanting to have this conversation for quite some time. Kind of behind the Christian Dad podcast, one of the thoughts is uh, me having conversations with guys that I want to learn from. And I thought, as long as I'm doing that on a daily, weekly basis, let's record some of these conversations so that others can kind of do the same thing. Often I want to sit and listen in on everybody else's conversations, like some really cool people. And so you're one of the really cool people that I've wanted to sit and listen to conversations. And I have, I've listened to podcasts you've been on. I've read your book, spent time with your family. So really, really cool. My wife, even after spending time with your family said, what can we do to be more like the Teshners? <laughs> so like the ultimate compliment when somebody's living their life right. And somebody's wife says, what steps can we take to be more like them? That's kind of the intro to Cujo, Rob Teshner, and I left out quite a bit of what your intro could be, but I think we'll talk about a few of those things. But that's really why I wanted to bring you on the podcast is I, I want my family to be influenced by your family. So welcome, Rob. Well, thanks, Dan. The feeling is mutual. And just know that one of the challenges, I think, in our life over here at Team Teshner is we don't get a chance to spend as much time with you guys as we'd like to. And, and so very, very kind words. I love your approach. I feel the exact same way in terms of sitting back and listening to great people talk about what it is that they've got going on. Um, and that's what I'm doing watching you. So the feeling is mutual on all counts. So we are in kind of a, a super special time. I wanted to have the whole podcast series released by the end of March, maybe beginning of April. And something happened in March. <laughs> so we're all, all being affected by uh, COVID-19. Various different things have happened. We were supposed to meet a few weeks ago and that got interrupted. And uh, life as we know it has become radically different. Before I get into some of the other topics I wanted to talk about, how has your family and business, and I want to hear about how you've pivoted quickly, and if there's anything that anybody who's listening might be able to do to, to help you and your family in some way. So I'm thinking business first and foremost. However, that might not be the first and foremost thing for you. Without knowing, just op open it up and where are your pivots, priorities, and if there's an opportunity for somebody to engage and help, how might that be? Yeah, okay. Well, well, thank you very much on all counts, Dan. I'll begin by saying that my business over the last year has really kind of taken off. And, it's, and what that has meant is being on the road pretty much every week, Monday through Friday. I do a lot of leadership teaching, a lot of leadership training, and do a lot increasingly amount of high amount of keynotes. And so what that means practically as a family is that somewhere early Monday morning, I'm on my way to the airport somewhere, usually late Friday night or early Saturday morning, I come back from the airport. I, uh, I do some dad stuff Saturday, you know, we have Sunday is the Lord's day and Sunday night, I go back to the piece of luggage that I haven't really fully unpacked from the previous travel, swap right. out the things that need to be swapped out and hit the road again. Now we've got five little ones, 14, 11, eight, five, and two, as you know, your listeners right. don't know. And my poor long suffering spouse, my dear bride, Diane, she's a, she's a solopreneur at home. <laughs> uh, managing all the different kiddos, you know, and the logistics are pretty tough because we've got one, one kid that goes to middle school about 25 minutes away. We've got three kids that go to school about seven minutes away. We've got one kid that goes to preschool about 15 minutes away and just managing all that, that's tough. So the first opportunity of the current crisis is we are re-engaged as a family and it has been a thing of beauty. I mean, yesterday was a beautiful day here in St. Louis sunny, warm. We were outside. Everybody was playing lacrosse. Everybody was riding bikes. Everybody was, the 11-year-old the went on a run. 
the six-year-old tried to hang with him, <laughs> didn't. <laughs> it was so good. And, and unfortunately, whenever we return to a version of the previous normal, whatever our new normal is going to be, it's going to be hard to hit the road again because this is so nice. So for me personally, this has been a bit of a blessing. On the business side, if, if you make a living off of being in large congregations of people, now is not the time to be in that line of work. But we're optimistic that recent pivot to doing a lot of online training, virtual training, is going to continue to to support allow us to move forward in a pretty good fashion. And maybe the opportunity there is less time on the road and more support to organizations that are looking to survive in future disruptions in this means. I mean, this backdrop over here, just so you know, totally fraudulent. This is not my office. <laughs> but it does make for a pretty nice backdrop for doing online training. It's a new addition to the mix in light of COVID-19. So, so that might be where things go. In the longer term, we're really hoping to ramp up the keynote speaking, Dan, because that has been so fulfilling. It has been so much fun and it also limits the amount of time away. Does that kind of answer the question? So ramp up keynote speaking? Yeah, as much as we can once we get back into a, a new normal, because the other opportunity there, if you combine that with virtual instructions, yes, yes. keynote talk, you're usually on site for a day, maybe two, depending on what kind of a rehearsal pattern. Whereas when I do my workshops, the Monday through Friday piece, that's hard. Yes, so yes, yeah. So I keynote. Combination of the two. So try and lessen the, the, um, the yes, time away and do as I, much. As by much. doing the online. Yep, that's that right. makes sense. Yep, the, yep, the, the old one too. Yep, yep, that's fantastic. Let's talk about why uh, you do keynote speech, not why you do them. I know why you do them, and I think a lot of people will understand once they get your topic. So you've got a background, Top Gun instructor, got to fly the cool jets. You've got your favorite, of course. You took all your military training, and as you know, I was military as well. We weren't allowed to touch the planes, only once you guys took the stuff off them and set them politely feet away from the plane were we allowed to touch that stuff right worship the metal bird stay away <laughs> so so many things there however taking all your experience and being on the officer side and then you wrote a fantastic book tell us a little bit more about that and then we can dive in and how we can apply that not only to business but also to family yeah so thanks for that dan i was privileged i really really enjoyed being in the u.s air force for 20 years and a few months I really enjoyed flying airplanes. I was privileged to be able to fly the airplanes that I wanted to fly. I got a chance to, to grow up in and become pretty good at flying the F-15 Eagle, St. Louis-based product. I yes. had a champion of it. I got an amazing opportunity to command an F-22 squadron, the Raptor, and spent three years in that platform. And I mean, you could not ask for a better career than that. In 2014, colorectal cancer suddenly shows up out of the blue sky, kind of like our experience with COVID-19 over here. You know, you're tracking it from afar. You're hearing stories about other people that are dealing with it. Yes. No impact. Life is normal. Spring break continues, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, everybody's on lockdown. You can't get toilet paper. All kinds of other weird things start to manifest themselves. That's how it was for us with the cancer diagnosis. And that transition that forced transition caused us to shut down a career that was rocketing forward in a really, really, really awesome fashion. Caused us to not only retire early, but to come to a place that my wife had no familiarity with or very, very little familiarity with, just so that we could create some stability and be close to some family in case I get sick again. We're thinking through all kinds of rough implications and my body does not work the way that it's designed to work. So I go from my most recent deployment in the F-22 involved crossing the Pacific Ocean in a fighter jet to now I'm worried about making a 15-minute drive to work, concerned about whether or not I can make it there without having any accidents. Colorectal cancer can be a really nasty thing to recover from. And so for about two to three years, I was trapped in bathrooms. And in that phase, uh, it was very, very difficult trying to figure out how it is that I'm going to provide for the family. I joined a startup that never started only because they gave me the opportunity to work from home. I became a mortgage loan officer, trying to convince people to refinance their mortgage loans, having never met me, making smiling and dialing phone calls to California <laughs> and across Missouri, which by the way, gave me a, a, an incredibly strong appreciation for people that are out there every day, puffing and trying to sell. 
that can be a really, really tough thing to do. But in that process, I recognized that one of the many things that I was privileged to be able to do during my evolution as a fighter pilot was to be a member of high performance teams yes. and eventually to lead them. And if you start looking at, you know, what does that mean? What I found was in the startup, in the mortgage loan team, and as I observed other teams that I was connected with, teams don't just happen. Teaming is a verb doesn't just happen. And when a team doesn't function the way that a team can, there's a price that's paid. They don't perform as well. And teamwork that's not done well doesn't serve the purpose for which it was designed. And so my thought was, let's take and transfer some of the knowledge that I accrued over my couple of decades learning teamwork, practicing at a very, very high level, and deploy it in places where it makes sense, where folks are interested in upping their game. And that was the basis for my company, VMAX Group. It created the springboard to be able to go in and to start teaching again, which is at the end of the day, what a fighter pilot is. The fighter pilot is much less somebody that employs a sophisticated weapon. It's much more somebody that can teach how to do it to his or her teammates on a consistent basis, as well as to the new generation. We've got such turnover in the military that we're always teaching. And so I get to be a teacher again. And that has reinvigorated me, even though the cost over the last years has meant so much time away from home, it's fulfilling work. And we're marching towards an objective where eventually I won't be on the road as much anymore. Yes, yes. <laughs> you mentioned teaching and just as a little side note from a understanding the subject matter that you're looking to teach or currently teaching or even take it to the level of writing a book, how has your understanding of that subject matter increased from the learning it and doing it phase to the teaching it and writing about it phase, writing books about it? Yes. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, no, that's a fascinating subject in and of itself. What I'll tell you, and you mentioned Top Gun, so the Air Force, the United States Air Force has a weapons instructor course, it used to be called the Fighter Weapons School. It was established in 1949, and its purpose is to teach the top 1% to 2% of your frontline performers how to be better. I went through the course, it's a six month program, the most demanding course I've ever been through. I was very fortunate to be invited back to teach there. One of the things that I reflect on is that we were really good at the tactics. We were outstanding at teaching how to employ, but when it comes to learning how to teach, we really didn't have instruction in that. And so most of us followed the example of the outstanding teachers that we were able to witness there. And we kind of just mimicked. Now when I'm coming into business, and I'm a former military guy coming in, talking to CEOs about how to improve business performance. One of the things that I figured early on that would be, or that could be a point of contention is, yeah, hey, Cujo, if that's your name, appreciate the fact that you used to fly fighter aircraft, but you know, we haul trash or we sell computer equipment or you know, we who are florist. What you're talking about doesn't necessarily translate. And so I spent a decent amount of time before I went out teaching and in the process of writing my book, Debrief to Win, studying why, why do our techniques work? Why are we effective as teams in the military? What is it about what we do that we can root in science that could then make it cross-transferable to anywhere where you have a team? And so you, what you'll find is in the book, there's a heck of a lot of references in there. There's a lot of research. I forget how many books I specifically call out in the, in the book, but the number of a books. Lot. That, yeah, there's a, and, and, a and, lot. and by the way, behind the screen over here, there are stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of books that point to the research that explains why the things that we did worked. So now I can take the practical examples of here's what we did and how it worked for us. Here's the science behind why it works. You marry those things up and it becomes entertaining education that allows a team to become better. In fact, one of the opportunities of right now is yesterday afternoon, told the family, keep on rocking. Dad's going to sit outside for a bit. And I finally got a chance to read one of the books that's been sitting on my to read list for a long time, which is forming the basis for one of the new courses that I'm developing right now. So it's a long winded way of saying what we did worked. We've been doing it for decades, taking the time now to understand why so that we can justify it and you can overcome whatever the objections might be, which occasionally I'd say once in a hundred pop up for those who are really hmm, wondering how a military guy can come in and, and do any sort of work in business. And it's been really, really rewarding. 
And I lo love in your book and in your talks, you talk about high performance teams. That takes team and elevates that to a different level. And when you think about the, the world champion St. Louis Cardinal teams, and I know you love them. And when you think about whatever your version of high performance team is, like a fighter jet pilot, that whole squadron, I'm like, okay, got it. High performance team. When I was in the military, we managed flight lines. We moved stuff from here to there. Occasionally we had people that we told and pointed at a bus and drove them somewhere like high performance team. Okay, whatever. Well, I was out in uh, outside Kansas City at Central Missouri State going to college. It was a flight school and I was in the reserves and I get this phone call, the red alert message, but it was raging bull. And I answer the phone as a college kid. I'm like, what? Who is this? <laughs> Why are you saying that over and over and over? <laughs> I don't think our high performance team, or in this case, low performance on that aspect, ever <laughs> talked about what the emergency jump into action and spring forth and execute what that meant. And finally, the guy's like, all right, I'll just tell you. <laughs> what it meant was, hey, get to the reserve base, which was in Belleville, Illinois, as fast as you can. And we're deploying. And I'm like, okay, when? He said, well, I said as fast as I can. I'm like, well, I'm outside Kansas City. So like the fast I can, if I jump to my car this second and pack nothing, would be four hours. Is the plane leaving in less than four hours? But it, So I, I ran home, packed a couple things here, ran to my parents' house, packed a couple things there, and drove there that night. And within 48 hours, we were in operation in Fort Bragg, North Carolina our whole group. So that took the mundane part of uh, moving stuff at an airfield to, wow, we kind of are a high performance team. Somehow we muddled through a bunch of things and made it there in 48 hours. And within a few days, we sent a whole downstream crew to an island to get working down there. Like, holy moly, this regular team, hey, we're a high performance team. Well, here's a scenario that can help you envision that we actually are a high performance team. And these are why we do the drills and type things. So you want to go through your kind of debrief to win. And in part of that, my understanding is, hey, on the teams that I'm involved with, I want them to understand the impact of what we do so we can all have a high performance team mindset. And this is why we debrief to win. So great story, great background. If you study teams, you find that many of the teams that we're part of, many of the teams that we lead may not actually be teams because they don't contain all of the elements that make up a team. Teams aren't just teams by default. And actually, in the further study of teams, not all teams that are teams are as much a teams as you might think. So you mentioned the Cardinals, 11-time world champions. The team that I've been championing across the globe since 1982, the first time that I was really really interested in baseball as a kid and, and watched the, that world championship team in game seven with Bruce Suter there uh, locking down the win. A baseball team can afford to have a bit of individualism, uh, much more so than, say, a hockey team like the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues. Yes. On a hockey team, that shared sense of purpose the shared goals, the mutual approach for which everybody's accountable evolves into a shared consciousness to where when you watch a hockey team play, you've got folks that are scooting down the ice at breakneck speed, and they'll pass the puck behind them knowing that their teammate is exactly where they need to be to take that puck off of a blind pass, put a shot on goal that might result in a score. That's unfathomable. If you, if you just think about the speed involved, the, the trust involved, it doesn't just happen. There's a lot that goes into creating the shared consciousness that allows a play like that to consistently happen well. And what it comes down to is those teams spend a lot of time, specifically the Blues, spend a lot of time figuring out how to be as strong of a team as they can be. A team, if you study it up, and I, I refer to the wisdom of teams right now, usually small in size so that individual voices can be heard. You've got people with complementary skills that share commitment to a common purpose, to performance goals, and to an approach for which they're mutually accountable. The researchers that wrote the wisdom of teams would say that if you're missing one of those five characteristics, you're not a team, most teams are, are, are missing one or more. So just think about that for a second. And maybe it's the fact that even though we kind of think we understand what our purpose is, if we've never spent any time really organizing around that, discussing it, evolving it, maybe we're actually operating across purposes and perhaps somewhere along the lines, you've been on a team that functioned that way or maybe didn't function because of that. 
you know, sometimes we operate in the absence of stated goals. We're just doing, we're doing, we're doing, but we may not even be clear on what exactly we're doing, but we're urgently doing it, meaning that we're, we're really not organizing as a team. And that last piece, the approach for which we're mutually accountable suggests that we have a way of doing business and it's a shared consciousness sort of way of doing business for evolved teams. And we will hold ourselves accountable for doing what it is that we said that we were going to do uh, in the way that we said that we were going to do it. And the absence of that can be a destructive force on any team. Debrief to Win, it's the third book of a series. The first one's called Lead by Serving. The second one's called Team to Succeed. The third one is Debrief to Win. But of those three, there's only been one book written and it's the last one. And I wrote the last one because it's the easiest one for me to write because my background, I, I used to be the Air Force's subject matter expert on practicing the art of debriefing. I wrote all the stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and it is awesome actually, just because I got an email about a month ago from an instructor at the Air Force Academy. And out of the blue sky, she wrote me, she said, hey, listen, Kuja, just so you know, in case it's interesting to you, we teach young cadets what you wrote about at the weapons school, part of their formation as, as young officers to be. We teach them how to debrief based off of your instruction. I thought that was kind of neat. But what I really think is important is those young officers are getting something that's so fundamental to making teams work. If you don't hold yourselves accountable in a forward-looking, non-blaming, non-shaming, this is about being better tomorrow kind of a way, you're not going to be the best team leader that you can be. Your team's not going to function the way that it's designed to function. And so we're better to start than in the formation of the next generation of officers in doing this. And that accountability piece, I've spent all last, I did about over a hundred workshops with mostly CEOs and key leaders. What I'll tell you is, is that in most cases, most of these leaders would acknowledge that they would practice accountability in a time of failure. So project didn't quite go as well as it needed to. We lost the client. We didn't get the sale, whatever, fill in the blank there would be an accountability session, which when pressed on it a little bit, would a lot of times result in, all right, Dan, you know, you screwed this thing up, quit screwing it up kind of a thing where you're publicly blamed for the fault or the failure. And off we go, hoping that somebody learned something from it and that we're better poised. In my background, a thing that I took for granted growing up in the F-15 world was I failed all the time. And my leaders, my instructors, my teachers didn't punish me for it. They didn't blame me for it. They certainly didn't shame me for it. What they did was is they tried to uncover the root of what led to the, the failure, if you will, and we saw failure as a good thing, by the way, what led to the, to the failure so that we could correct it. So that tomorrow I was better poised to do better in a really demanding environment. And by always looking at tomorrow's being a better version of the experience than today was, I rapidly evolved in a frightening domain. I mean, think about it. We're moving around at greater than the speed of sound. We're pulling up to nine times the force of gravity. We're employing a machine of death with really sophisticated weapon systems, doing things that looking back on it, I almost don't understand how we were able to do it. And that we were doing it at a very, very high level and always pushing ourselves to be better. It was a magnificent place to be. It's a place where people would volunteer their mistakes. In our debriefs, it got to the point, Dan, where I would come in and say, look, I, I, I totally screwed this thing up. And you'd say, yeah, I get it. But you know what? I'm actually the reason why you screwed that thing up because I did this other thing that set you down that path. And then our leader would come and say, yeah, I get it, both of you. But really, I'm the one that designed the plan for this thing. And I, I take the ultimate blame. I'm ultimately accountable. To come from that world and then to not see it in another one, I said, well, there's a huge gap. There's a pain point there that people may not even fully appreciate because they've never seen anything else. Let's, let's start there. And it's been so, so transformative for the companies that have adopted it. But that's less interesting to me than the application to family. And we, we might talk about that here in a, in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So what you just said, it sounds exactly like I got to hang out with the greatest show on turf years ago. Tori Holt, Trey Bly, Orlando Pace, uh, Steven Jackson fantastic group of guys. One of the conversations I had with Dre Bly in particular, defensive guy, cornerback, I was surprised. Mike Mart's name came up, a controversial coach. He was very opinionated. He was very bold. He made decisions that other people wouldn't make. And I said, hey, what'd you think about Mad Mike? And he says, oh, I loved him. I said, a defensive guy? <laughs> loved an offensive coach. I'm like, tell me why. He goes, it was great. He gave us ultimate confidence in ourselves. I said, okay, how so? And he said, 
kind of what you just said. They said, I'm going to train you guys up and get you guys all ready. And you guys are max effort and you guys are all in. I have a hundred percent confidence that when I call the play, you guys are going to execute it the way it was designed and it's going to succeed. And if it doesn't, because I did it wrong, I made the wrong call. We fail. The only way we fail is if I made the mistake. So I'm going to go for it on fourth and seven. If I know the play that's going to succeed, if I feel like, you know, we'll go a different direction, but how I have the confidence to call fourth and seven is because I know I got the right players that are going to execute the plan. What? <laughs> he goes, yeah. And he instilled that even on the defense. He's like, you know, his nickname was playmaker. He's like, go make plays. Plays win games. Don't be conservative. If you think you can do it, if you miss, I'm okay with that. You went for it, believe in yourself, execute at a high level. And if you make, you know, if something doesn't come out right, well, that's okay. Like I'll take it. And I'll be at the press conference saying that I told you to do it. Awesome. Oh, awesome on so many levels. And by the way, you continue to reaffirm why it is that I'm jealous of you. you know, <laughs> just dropping off the, uh, you know, I was hanging out with this member of the Cardinals or that member of the Blues or kissing the Stanley Cup or hanging out with the Rams back in the day. Oh, my gosh. You know, if I could just walk in your shoes for an afternoon, Dan. I've been blessed to, to, to hang around some pretty neat people and some pretty neat stories for sure. Yeah. Well, I love Mark's approach and that you see the place where you thrive as an individual, I think is the place where whoever it is that's in the titular role of leader. Right. So there's, you know, you can have people that truly they're the CEO, they're the president, they're the whatever team lead. They don't see you as an underling. They don't see you as uh, a cog in the wheel. They don't see you as something that's taken up space that has to be controlled. They see you as a valued member of something that's much, much greater than the sum of its individual parts if it's done correctly. They see you as an equal contributor and maybe even the person that holds the keys to our success. And in that value statement, you suddenly can, can evolve into who it is that you were meant to be. How many people do we know are actually not making an income right now, but so happy that they're not at work because they hate it? Yes. They hate it. I mean, and tragically, even though financially they're stressed out of their minds, maybe the stress is less than back when the paychecks were coming on the 1st and the 15th, but they had to go to a place where it was horrible. Yes. We spend so much of our time at work and that's not how it, how it needs to be. And the high performance team world is one where you actually are excited about it. It's not, it's not nirvana. There's, there's always going to be struggles and challenges and there's things and obstacles and whatnot. But if you had to pick a place to be, you'd thrive probably in the place of high performance teaming, much more so than the place where you're just somebody that has to be micromanaged to barely get the things done because you're a not very valuable member of this organization. And that's kind of, that's sort of how business evolved in the early 1900s. We went to mass production and where we were all about efficiency and where we were all about trying to ramp up and tweak and get as much out of every single line item and day as we could. And that was dehumanizing. Right now, right. we're back into push for, in some cases, rehumanizing our workplaces. And we've gone look to high performance teamwork to do that. I'd say one of the things that I missed the most about my previous life was the ethic that underpinned a high performance team, different from, a, from just a regular run of the mill team. And that is if one of us fails, we all do. If you think about that, that statement, if one of us fails, we all do and consider its implications, it may be the missing link that transforms an organization fundamentally into, into becoming even better than the owners and the leaders could ever have envisioned. If one of us fails, we all do, from a leadership standpoint, says, I let my team down and I've got to fix me and my approach before anything else. And if it's fully adopted and embraced at all levels of the team, well, then the person who may have made the mistake also looks at it from the standpoint of, I let us all down and how can I improve myself? But if everybody, instead of running away from the failure, the mistake, the whatever the circumstances might have been, runs towards it, the ability to rapidly improve coming out of that goes so high because now we have trust, which leads to truth. Truth leads to root cause establishment. Root cause establishment means we're fixing the right problem the right way at the right time. And now there's a fulfillment and a drive to want to engage and be there more. The other side of it is when we win, we celebrate. And we, we're actually regimented on always debriefing so that we always can celebrate the heroics that are taking place there was a time in my F15 evolution where I stopped failing as much. 
Yeah, there were yeah. there were missions where I actually started doing well, and it wasn't just assume that like yeah, of course you're going to get this right. Now let's find other faults to focus on. No, my instructors, some of whom now lead our Air Force with four stars. They, as young captains and majors, they said, hey, Cujo, awesome job today. Look at this. We've substantiated based upon the truth that you did some heroic things. Keep it up, brother. When you hear those words as a young pup, no matter what it is that you do, you're inspired to want to come back out there and keep it up. We debrief all the time. We debrief consistently. We debrief in the midst of the good and the bad with an eye towards celebrating heroics as well as towards improving even in the midst of even if we want we're going to figure out could we have won better could we have been more efficient in how it is we won we're going to celebrate and champion what what it was that happened but we're also still looking at tweak which the nation expects of us because we're not just going to be b players we always want to be a plus players but you take that and you, and you cross transfer that cross apply it wherever you want to that's what inspires us and at the family level it can inspire us tremendously and by us, I'm talking about our little rugrats, our kiddos that are out there trying to be their best, trying to do what it is that it takes to, to succeed in this world, in this life. That's been an area of approach for us. Not as much in the VMAX group world, my company, certainly in the Team Teshner world. Yes, yes. That's a, that's a great point on celebrating wins. I do a journal every day and the bottom corner, today's wins. Often, as guys, as people, we don't celebrate our own wins. We don't even recognize that we had them. And then secondly, when we see somebody else in our world do something well, often in the old days, leaders would, hey, good job today, and move on. And what that can create is a feeling of, what did I do? I'd love to do it again. I don't know what it was. And I'm kind of angry that he didn't, what? So it was so important to have clarity on what it was that you're recognizing for others and then also having that clarity for yourself so you can repeat those actions and reward your own self so that you can continue on the path. So I, I love that you talked about celebrating wins because I think it's so important for ourself and then so important for developing the, the people around us and having them you know, raise their game as well. So kind of that escalation and improvement across all, all levels. So. If I may, for just a second, Dan, yes. at one point, I did an offsite for a group, probably halfway through the workshop that we were doing. One of the participants said, stop. So I stopped, it was, it was kind of jarring. And this participant said, if this company adopts the approach that you're teaching us today, I'm not gonna quit next week. Wow. And uh, that was pretty interesting, especially since the supervisor in question was sitting right there. And I said, okay. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I was not expecting this today, but please do tell. And this participant said, look, I have been giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, and nobody has cared. And about three months ago, I stopped caring as well. Everybody here will immediately point out a flaw, a deficiency. But the things that I was doing, the extra effort that I was putting in, the giving of my entire soul to advance the cause here. I mean, these are my words and trying to capture what it was that was being said there. That went completely unnoticed to the point where I stopped caring as well. Like why give when nobody even recognizes that you're doing so? And in fact, it got so bad that I decided to go find another place of employment. I found one and I'm making the transition here soon. Now, if this company is going to start looking into the heroics as you put them or however we want to look, I would not mind sticking around to see if it sticks, essentially. And that was shocking. And I told that story, completely different city. After the workshop was done, person comes up to me and says, that story defines my story. And I'm also planning on leaving in the next two weeks. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is tragic. The second person said the same thing. If we adopt what it is that you're talking about over here, then I would be happy to stick around too because I appreciate what it is that we do. I'd like to, to stay here. I just, I want to be valued. I mean, people are longing for this. They want to be valued. They want to be, they want to be seen as contributing, having an impact. We spend so much time at work. If we're not contributing, if we're not having an impact, if it's just about collecting pay and benefits, how unsatisfying. Our souls need to be engaged. Which is so funny when somebody's applying for a job, a lot of the questions that they ask involve pay and benefits. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and those are down on the top 10 of things that they actually care about the very, very most. And right. the employer oftentimes also keys in on those things. 
Yes. And yeah, so at our place, very, very different. Like to focus on all the rewarding aspects, the teaming aspects, the accomplishing a common mission and mm-hmm. all those things. Over the years, I've slowly learned is things that I learn in business and life and all these experiences, how I can apply them at home and with my family. It's like every lesson I learn over here is directly applicable in all the other aspects of life. And in the Bible, it even says the reason why you work is so that you can learn how to apply things can team with others and learn things and apply them in other aspects of life and bring them home to your family. That's why you guys do what you do. That's why you've got to earn a wage, earn a living, uh, support your family. Your book, I love that approach and I love bringing that into the family. And I love that Diane, your wife, said, hey, why don't we do this at home? (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of funny. Uh, especially in, in, in the origin of that, you know, why aren't we doing this at home piece? I wrote two versions of Debrief to Win. The very first version, we were a couple of weeks away from publishing. And my mentor, my business mentor, Michael Gerber. Michael Gerber. Yep. He said, you know, I sent him a copy of the manuscript and, 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 and game. And he wrote me back. He said, hey, Kuja, you wrote the wrong book. The first version of Debrief to Win talked about my cancer story and how it is that I hold myself fully accountable for developing cancer. I had a preventable form of cancer that I did not prevent back when it was preventable. And then it morphed into a really significant, huge problem that will affect me for the rest of my life kind of a deal. That's not good. He said, a business book ought not to involve cancer. It's such a downer, right? Everybody's got a connection (laughs) to it. Let's not have that. So we removed it. The second version of the book, it's a sterile business book, if you will. Sterile in the sense that there's no re- reference whatsoever to, to disease, but it does have stories in it. I, I gave the manuscript this time to my wife. And my primary concern was that I represented my tribe well. Like, will members of the F-15, F-22 community embrace this? Or will they say, man, you, you know, you got this wrong. And she read it and she said, look, thank you, first of all, because now I understand what it is that you've been ranting about all of these years. <laughs> And secondly, why don't we do this as a family? This strikes me, and she's an accountant by trade, Dan, this strikes me as something that would be abundantly useful in the family setting. That was very, very encouraging because I was not expecting that at all. We've adopted that portion and as well as all the other teaming approaches that I write about in the book that'll come out and team to succeed. And what we found is, is that our family team is so much tighter when we follow the teamwork practices that we did in the business side. But unlike you, Dan, I didn't cross apply. I didn't see the obvious connections into the family team until after the cancer journey. It was a cancer piece that caused me to think on why am I a high performance team member, high performance team teacher at work and not focusing on building the exact same kind of a unit in my home life. And what do I need to do to do so? Because I think the benefits are there. And if we can build a high performance team with team Techner, Maybe not the whole focus because you still have to have an engine that that provides for the family. That that ought to be a significant focus for us. And once we started to look at the world that way, and we as a team, family team, started to apply teaming techniques on the family side, we became a much, much better unit. And we see ourselves as being a great testing point for building high-performance teams on the family domain writ large across society. And that's so exciting. That's something that Diane's going to help me with. When we yes. stop having toddlers in the house <laughs> so that she can come out and tell the story of how our family has evolved into a team since the cancer journey happened. That's great. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what you guys do or how you got this started or, or like yeah. I'm fascinated to hear this? You know, sometimes I'll have somebody ask me almost out of the blue sky, hey, can we, hey, Kuja, you're, you're a debrief guy. Can we just debrief this thing? I'm like, yeah, I suppose you could apply certain components to whatever it is that this thing is that you want to debrief. But if you want to be technically correct, the debrief is the end of a, a never-ending cycle. So it's part of a process that's continuous, but it's one that begins with planning. So if, mm-hmm. think about it this way, back at Central Missouri State, if your instructors said on day one of a new class, here's your final exam, good luck you may not have done as well as if you spent the semester learning, prepping, studying, and then taking the exam. Same thing in life. If, if, if you go in in your business and you, know, you go straight to the, hey, Rob, we just met. Here's the form. Would you like to sign here and, and, and buy my product or service? I'm probably going to say, who the heck are you? And leave me alone, you know, and like yeah, yeah. erase your name from my phone. 
there's a planning process that you ought to go through to figure out how to best position your company, you as a salesperson with your products and services. So you have the best chance of winning the deal, securing the deal, getting me to sign up. So planning is where things begin. We, as a family, we plan regularly. We plan when I hit the road, it's after we've spent Sunday evening usually building the plan for how it is that every member of our team is gonna help mom to succeed the next week, how it is that I'm gonna support from afar, how it is that they're gonna help me in what it is that I'm doing so that we have a, a common framework from which to start. We know that the plan is gonna to have to be adjusted as we go through, the week is not gonna be as smooth as what we envision, but it's a starting point. And we're very serious about communicating with one another about what our obligations are, what we're taking on, what our responsibilities are to support the team plan to win in the following week. As we go through each day, we do the best job that we can adapting the plan to the reality of the situation and recognize that with as kids as young as ours are, you know, the eight, five and two year old can be some significant adjustments 14-year-old is increasingly smart. He's increasingly evolving. He's he's already eclipsed me in intelligence and capability. So that adds a new dimension to- If those uh, kids would just stagnate, like it'd be so great. <laughs> and so terrible. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. But ultimately we go out there and do the best we can. Some days we're gonna regress, some days we're gonna fail more than we win. But we're very conscious of at the end of every day when we get together and I'll, I'll dial in with my phone. We usually FaceTime to do our, our evening prayers. And we'll also talk about, did we do what we said that we were going to do today? And what adjustments do we need to make to have a better win tomorrow? We'll have a quick debrief of the day. And we'll do that through the week. Sometimes it can't happen because I'm doing an evening engagement and I can't dial in, but Diane and the kiddos will. And then when we come back, we'll reconvene and debrief the week highlight the good that happened, celebrate the successes, talk about the areas where we may not have been our best to tweak the performance so that the next time that we're in the same boat, we do better. And that has been fantastic. It's been actually fantastic for my bride. An accountant by trade again, I keep on mentioning that because sometimes people will tell me, hey, you're a fighter pilot, I'm not. This might work for you in the fighter pilot domain. I do X. My wife, who's also not a fighter pilot, who had no connection to the day-to-day -day affairs of fighter pilots, she says, we function as a team when we follow the team life cycle events that you practice. And if we don't do it, we're not as good. And that's so powerful. And it's been transformative for us. We're constantly building towards being better as a family team with every passing day, making small changes, incremental progress along the route to high-performance teamwork for Team Teschner. So what are some key components? Is it individual meetings? Do you have family meetings? Uh, sounds like you have daily and weekly, maybe even some quarterly. Yeah, so we make the point to meet up and to discuss, to openly communicate and to have people affirm what it is that they're going to do. Have our kids say, this is what I'm responsible for. This is how I'm going to do it. They step up and we don't make it laborious. You know, one of the things we don't want to do is kill the family through obnoxious meetings. Um, <laughs> and it's not a corporate. Also, just like work. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> but rather this ought to be a, I mean, it's a, it's a quick powwow. It's a quick, quick. all right, we, we kind of know what the rhythm looks like. We kind of understand what it is we're supposed to do. Steven, you on board? Absolutely. I got it. You know, Lucy, of course, dad, Christopher. Yep. Michael, Nicholas, he's still too. Uh, he's just hilarious. He says something. We're not quite sure what it is that he's saying. He tries to mimic the rest of the kiddos, but it's, <laughs> it's awesome. And then at prayer time, that's our opportunity to quickly assess, are we on track? It's, a, it's that simple. Are we on track? Are we doing what it is we said? If somebody didn't, that's usually where we have somebody fess up and say, yeah, I, you know, you're right. I should have done this. I'm sorry. I'll do better tomorrow. I subscribe to James Clear's uh, three, two, one, uh, you know, weekly Thursday message thing. About a month ago in it, he had a note, a quote from Anne Frank's diary in which she wrote, wouldn't it be neat if at the end of every day, we could reflect on the day to figure out what went well and what didn't so that we'd be better poised essentially to do better tomorrow. That's my quick summary of what came out of her diary. I thought that's beautiful. It actually goes back to the Jesuit tradition started by St. Ignatius of Loyola of an examination of conscience as being part of the end of the day, figure out where the gaps and the holes are to make the corrections for tomorrow. There's a spiritual basis for everything that we're talking about over here. And spiritually it connects us with who it is that we really are and who it is that we're aiming to be. And we're practicing that 
you can practice it in any domain that you want to, but it's all integrated and it ties to who we are in our core and what it is we're trying to evolve into to be. And, and it's so widely used this, this notion of being the best version of ourselves. It's, it's almost an exhausted phrase in certain ways. Oh, yes, yes. But it ought to be the aim that we're striking for in our evolution towards where it is we're ultimately going in life. Yes, yes, the, the number one mission. Right. You mentioned uh, daily prayer. I think that is so key. Monsignor, where I go to church, he says, first question I ask when I'm in couples counseling, a couple comes to me and says, hey, we want to talk. And he says, well, I've got a question for you. Once they get sat down and the couple talks for a long time, and then he goes, okay, I've got a question for you. And his question always is, tell me about your daily prayer life. Tell me about your prayers when you pray together. And he goes, I've not had one couple ever come together that said that they pray together every day. And are having big marital problems. It's like, it's a totally different thing. So I love that you guys pray together as a family. Love that uh, you pray with the kids. And it sounds like you and Diane also pray maybe individually together, like separate from the kids. Yeah. So uh, when we look at the, the fruits of the cancer piece and all of the disruption, I mean, my wife was six months pregnant when we got the cancer diagnosis. We were living overseas. And so we were remotely separated from family and from the people that we'd really need to be together with to, to make it through this deal. We made the decision to get out of the place that was providing us a stable income and to go into a world that we didn't understand. And we had an international move to boot. You talk about stressors. I mean, we, we just packed as much in as we possibly could, you know, which is crazy looking back on it. But we saw so much good that came of it. From cancer diagnosis to the first surgery was about two weeks. Right prior to that first surgery, once we got both of our moms in town, we went to Lourdes and did a pilgrimage to the grotto there in Lourdes, France, which was fantastic. Even for my wife, as pregnant as she was and, and feeling the way she was, the weather was phenomenal. It was a beautiful time. It was March. It was like a fantastic prayerful retreat that we went on before I went into the, you know, the biggest fight wow. uh, that I'd been in. Coming on the back end, well, and actually all throughout those, those two weeks, I mean, we, we did daily rosaries regularly. Coming off of the first surgery and route to the second, the body was so crushed. Everything was so painful. Things were so horrible. The prayer life increased. Uh, going into the second surgery, same kind of a flow. Coming out of the second surgery, life became just bleak, dark, horrible. Once they turned my body back on again, it was, it was, it was beyond miserable. Uh, but the prayer life was the best that it's ever been. And our nightly prayer as the two of us, it was awesome. Reflecting on this, I, I heard a Vietnam POW talk about his spiritual journey in life. He, he talks about how he, he was never closer to God in his life than during the four or five years he spent in Hanoi as a prisoner of war. And he said he kind of misses that closeness to God. In our case, for sure, we were never closer in our spiritual lives to God than when we were at the worst point physically. And I think, you know, this new rhythm of me being gone constantly has disrupted that closeness that Diane and I had with one another and our I mean, physically praying together next to one another before we went to sleep for a, an extended period of time. We're, we're not there. And in fact, with the body kind of being more cooperative with me now, that closeness that's driven by virtue of pain and suffering has, has exited a bit, which is kind of funny, sort of weird, actually tragic if you think about it and it needs to be re-harnessed without hopefully any of the surgeries or, or physical ramifications there. But the point is, a lot of people push back on pain and suffering. You know, why me? Why has this happened? And I can't believe this. If we look at it from another lens, what it can do to our spiritual lives and how it can affect us in a, in a fantastically brilliant way, oh my gosh, we might even race towards it when those experiences happen because of the spiritual fruits which is hard to say when you're in the midst of a really, really difficult time. I can only speak to our experience. I look back on that and see it as a thing of beauty. That's awesome. Often we can have things that come up in life, like in this current moment that we're in with the, the virus and everything. Just a couple nights ago, we did our typical bedtime routine. We did our bedtime prayers with the kids. Took a quick glance at my phone and I saw this email came in from a, kind of a prayer group that I'm a part of. And it says, hey, will you guys pray tonight for, you know, pray the Our Father and pray for, the, you know, the end of the virus. I'm like, huh. I had my seven-year-old next to me and I said, hey, I just got this message. And she says, oh, geez, who is it and what do they want? <laughs> <sighs> and when do you need to do it by? 
And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I totally didn't want to ask her to pray with me because I was afraid of this possible repercussions coming my way. And I go, well, what would you think about praying this prayer and having the intention that, you know, we ask God to end the virus and help the world become closer to him? And she says, that seems like a good thing, Dad. Let's do it. So we prayed the Our Father. Go to the next room, tell the other daughter, hey, this just happened. I just talked to your sister. We both just prayed, and she instantly prayed. There wasn't even a request for us to do it. So we, we prayed, and then the following night, we were all together in the room, and we did our bedtime prayers and everything, and we talked for a little bit. And then I said, hey, by the way, last night we prayed this, and the kids were off. Now tablet time, and, there's, and my wife says, hey, girls, will you pay attention to Daddy? And then we all prayed the Our Father together and had a little conversation about the virus and, you know, talked to God for a minute. And I'm like, man, this would be neat if we could string together three in a row today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, these little, you mentioned James Clear, Atomic Habit, like, so these little things that we do, we can keep building on each other, develop some consistency. And if we reflect or debrief at the end of days and recognize the little wins and keep stacking them together, We can radically change our life, but it doesn't have to be a radical change. It can be just some small things that lead Mm -hmm. to, when you look back, massive change. Amen. Yes, amen. So that's been something I've been fearful over the years is having that spiritual, deep, individual prayer with, uh, especially my wife, with my kids, I haven't been all that afraid. You know, they're wide open in their their Mm -hmm. understanding of the world and they often don't understand non-spiritual people, non-faith-based people. I frequently say that. But um, anyway, fearful of having that deep spiritual connection with my wife. It's gotten better and better and better over the years. But years ago when somebody said, pray with your wife, no way. The only thing I can do is maybe read off a card while she's next to me and (laughs) couldn't have a real prayer. So, and it sounds like maybe you were pushed into that with the surgery. Well, you know, in my case, um, I was really, really, really fortunate. I was a, I would consider myself to be a really checklist driven guy when it comes to yes. my faith practice. I think a lot of people can relate to the checklist. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? As a, as a pilot, you know, checklists are, are really, in fact, I have over here from a, a workshop I did the other day, this book, The Checklist Manifesto, written yeah. by a doctor. You know, Gawande. Yeah. Fan, fantastic book highlights the importance of checklists and the impact they can have, especially in healthcare, but in, in, in any industry, really. But to lead a checklist-based faith life is very unfortunate. It means we're just going through the motions. And even if the motions are technically correct, they're not having the impact they're supposed to. And so therefore, it's almost, I would almost argue, why bother? Now, that's not necessarily true. The Lord can work through us in the midst of our checklist disciplines and actually inspire a growth there. So if you know, if you're a checklist kind of person like I was, don't fear, good can come through it. But eventually I was going through a course on ethics at the National War College and it was a wonderful, the best academic course I've ever taken in my life. And I was in a class with nine other students. We had a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs as, as our instructor, it was such a phenomenal experience. But what struck me was how much character my classmates had. And they were sharing stories about ethical dilemmas that they faced as young officers and how they handled them. And I was blown away. And I recognize that these young officers back when they were, I mean, we were all at this point, lieutenant colonels and colonels, <laughs> back when my classmates were really, really young, they were achieving excellence in their ethical behavior. And they weren't affected by the tribe. They weren't affected by, you know, this is kind of how we do it around here, you know, so you need to, you know, get in or, or leave. They said, no, this is who I am. This is what's right. And I'm going to stick with what's right. And the way that that manifested itself with me is I started to evaluate my life and go, Am I at that level of performance in all areas of life? I mean, I, I taught at the fighter weapons school, pretty well known in the F-15 circles, got a chance to command F-22s, but I reflected on my spiritual life and went, I am not a rock star where it matters the most. And so we need to start working on that. A good example of this would be as a squadron commander, I could justify going to mass with my family on Sunday in my uniform so that I could then go to work and prepare for Monday. Like, well, okay. I mean, I've got a pretty compelling mission. I've got a pretty you know, important responsibility over here. But ultimately, this is the Lord's day. Am I treating it as such? And my reflection was not even close. 
I sought to achieve excellence or strive for excellence spiritually during my National War College experience, which changed the dynamic of how it is that I looked at every day of the week and what it is that I started doing personally. And it also started to evolve us on the family side in ways that I can't even describe adequately on this podcast. But that's where the evolution, frankly, started. We became a tighter knit family during that year, which then led to us going to Germany, which then led to the cancer diagnosis, you know, a year and a half, two years later. So by the time that I was in the hospital dealing with whatever, we had already started on a bit of this evolution. The additional piece was then saying, okay, try to be excellent spiritually, try to be excellent as a team in terms of being a family team. That, that whole package started to come together intellectually and we started to work on that. But the blessing for me was by the time that the pain was so horrible, by the time that I couldn't eat for months, by the time that my, my body was so disrupted going from supremely healthy, ready to return to the F-22 to I don't even know I can make it through every day, I realized my faith life had been blossoming and it was the piece that carried me through those dark days in its absence, I can't even tell you what might have happened. I, I, I was thinking on the eighth floor of the hospital there, how tragic it must be to be a person absent faith going through an experience like this. Why would you even continue was the reflection that I had. And the balconies in that German hospital were shockingly low. And on that eighth floor, I mean, <laughs> as bad as, the, I mean, truly, I mean, we're talking on my fundamental core pain, horror, why wouldn't you just go flop off that thing? You know, you could, I could see where that, that might cross somebody's mind. In my case, I just saw it as a thing of beauty going, I know why I'm here. I know what purpose it is that I serve. I know where it is that I'm going to get to. I know that I'm going to have the strength to persevere through this and we're going to come out on the, on the back end better. And I'm so grateful for the faith that was instilled in me by my parents. And that has been blossoming over the course of the last couple of years with our family. And it connected Diane and I so powerfully during that time frame. We still look back on that as being the genesis of uh, evolution in our relationship as a couple, for which we're extremely grateful. Have you got any tips to move off the checklist and get into a more personal relationship with Christ? Yeah. If you think about your work right now uh, at the insurance store, uh, my guess is, Dan, knowing you as, as well as I do and as long as I, I've known you, you don't come to work saying, okay, we're going to do the bare minimum today. You know, we're, we're going to try and min run this thing and just barely get by and then get out of here as fast as possible. Expect we're shutting down at 1.30, folks, right? That's not how a typical day goes. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. No, in fact, you've got pretty huge ambitions for 2020 uh, coming off the back end of this disruption and, and, and growing your company and growing your brand and growing your business. Why don't we take the same approach in our spiritual lives. If it's about men running, if it's about just getting enough done to fulfill the minimum obligation, how would you evaluate your performance? And by the way, if someday you're meeting the big guy, yes, and you're having a discussion about how it is that you lived your life, what's gonna resonate more? Hey, do you understand that we increased profitability 27% consecutively for 14 years in a row? Do you, do, you, do you appreciate that, Lord? And in the process, you know, <laughs> I had a non-existent faith life and, you know, the family kind of fell apart. I mean, where ought we strive to be excellent? Where do you want to be a top gun? In my humble opinion, it ought to be in the things that matter eternally. So why wouldn't we then figure out what it's going to take to be excellent where it matters most? That's why I think family is part of that. I think anybody with a family can see that connection. There will be folks who, even though this is a Christian podcast, might still be struggling with whether or not faith is important. If you buy into the notion that we exist here temporarily en route to something bigger, then why wouldn't we give deference to that fact and spend some time trying to be our best here? That's the ultimate point. And if you make that mental switch, then the checklist goes by the wayside and you pour your heart into what it is that matters most and you realize the fruits pretty quickly. My overarching technique, Dan, is strive for excellence in the spiritual domain the same way that you would with your business. That's a fantastic, and I, I wrote the question down, why wouldn't we figure out how to be excellent where it matters most? Mm -hmm. And why, why wouldn't we? Yeah. Because possibly we haven't heard that question before. We haven't posed that exact question to ourselves before. Heard the scenario of, say, you go up, God says, Rob or Cujo, whatever you prefer to be called. <laughs> God talking to you. Hey, buddy, do you have any time to read any books down there? What, what was a good one? 
and you go yeah. on about <laughs> different checklist <laughs> manifesto. You go on about, uh, you know, well, I wrote one, God. I, yeah. I wrote Debrief to Win, and, and right. I wrote a couple others as well. And Oh, cool. So you had some time to read some good books and different things. Do you have a chance to read mine? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you died when you were 102. Did you have a chance in that 102 years to, to read my book? But Lauren, I was so busy. I was so busy. We were, we increased profitability consistently. Twenty-seven percent for fourteen years. Yeah, yeah. I heard that question, and that really haunted me for years because I hadn't read the book. I'd read a, a lot of it in parts, but I never could quite piece together where I could confidently say that I'd read it. Mm-hmm. And I even tried. I even attempted and. Um, I didn't have the right people around me. I didn't have the right system around me, but I kept trying. And finally this year, I'm having some success with it. Well, it's been, you know, 15 minutes a day. Seems like it's going to get me through the, the entire Bible this year. Consistency, small steps. When, you, when we have these fantastic questions that we dive into, the results can be literally life-changing and eternal ramifications for us and our family and our future generations. So, my gosh, that is an incredible question. Mm-hmm. So I'd encourage everybody to ask yourself and your family that question, your spouse and your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, it just comes down to what do you prioritize in life? And it's so easy for us to focus on the things of this world and the cost of that could be pretty significant. So my morning prayer involves, you know, hey, let me let me die a little bit to the things of this world and every day to increase the amount of space in my heart for the things that actually matter, which includes the big guy as number one. And, and with that, I would say, and, I, and this is hard to say, knowing that there's so much pain and suffering right now. I mean, if you've been laid off in the last couple of weeks, if you don't know how it is that you're going to provide for your family, if you don't know that you can stay in your house because you can't afford the rent, whatever. This is going to sound almost impossible to fathom. Divorce the reality of the financial implications for just a second. One of the things that that may be a global outcome of this is the strengthening of the family unit because that may be all that we have right now, which is so much more than any of the other things that we previously valued that cause us the stress in their absence. And if the family can be tight, we can get through this. Watch Cinderella Man. Watch Cinderella Man and think about how that family came through a Hollywood depiction of a real story and how things came out on the back end of that. You know, may we may we seize the opportunity of this time and strengthen the things that matter most so that we come through life correctly and get to where it is that we aim to be. What about being a Christian dad? What type of things do you think about that are important? A list of a couple of hundred might come to mind, but if you boiled it down into a few things. What are a few things that you think about when you think about? One thing only, making sure my kids get to heaven. I have my list of accomplishments and accolades, the awards that I've won, the schools that I've been through, the distinguished graduate awards, they're significant. I don't care if any of my kids do any of that. I don't even care if any of my kids get any sort of academic accolades, period. This is not a self-serving statement. This isn't a prideful thing. I'm telling you, I don't care about any of their worldly accomplishments. What I want is for every one of them to be rock solid through their lives so that they arrive in heaven and they're there eternally. That's my only purpose as a father. If we achieve that with all five of the souls that have been entrusted to uh, Diane and yours truly for this lifetime, then this life will have been a success. Nobody's going to care in the next life how much the return on investment was, how great the profitability was, how many cool cars you bought, what the size of the house was or where it was located in the greater St. Louis area or wherever the, <laughs> wherever you are in the, in the, in the world, none of that's going to be at all relevant. What will be relevant is whether we were good and faithful servants. And I want my children to be rock solid there. That's it. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Year, years ago, I asked myself that question of what's my life mission. And I wrestled with it for a while and ultimately came up with a version of that, which is, mm-hmm get to heaven and help as many people get there as possible, especially those closest to me, specifically meeting my wife and kids. And then then it goes out from there. Mother Teresa said something along the lines of helping a hundred. You can't help a hundred, help one. You don't know where to start, start with the one closest to you. So our families are so, so important. And that is our charge. That is given to us as the male spiritual leader of the family to do everything we can with God's help to, to help that happen. So 
Love that you said that. Anything else that you want to close out the podcast with? A message of hope to those who really feel like everything has collapsed around them, to those who are on the front lines of the fight against this uh, this disease, to those who question, can we come back from this? It's in the, the darkest moments precede the moments of light. You have to have faith in that because that's the constant journey that the world has been on since its inception. We're just living that right now. Ultimately, we will get through this as a nation, as a planet. Question is whether we seize the opportunities that are happening here or not. I'm not talking about business opportunities at all. I'm saying, question is, are we taking a moment to stop and reflect? Are we spending the time that we've been given on the right things? Can we look back with the benefit of 10, 20 years distance in hindsight and go, yeah, we, we handled this the right way. If we can live our lives in a way that sparks a good answer to that, then this is gonna be okay. You know, hold the course, be resilient. We've been through this in various forms throughout the millennia. We'll get through this too. And maybe the best opportunity is to focus on God a bit more than we had leading up to these days. And that's how I'd end. Wow. Mic drop already with the comment about your one thing about being a dad and family. And what a fantastic message about hope. Because that's, that's what we all need is hope so that we can move forward. And you knew in that hospital bed, some might have made a different choice, might have jumped off that small ledge. But you had hope and faith. And that ultimately has you here right now with us. Exactly. Absolutely. And amen. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for coming on. I love your mission and love that uh, Diane's even going to take this a step further related to family. I love that she's yes. got this in her. She's going to do tremendous things. She, you've, you're blessed with such a fantastic wife. Uh, Likewise. Teams, yes, yes. I, I love my wife and uh, man, has she got some determination in her and can get some stuff mm -hmm. done. So mm -hmm. uh, I look forward to seeing what both of them do because both of them are working on some big projects. So yeah, your, your wife is going to benefit lots of other wives and families as well since she's taken this on. So thank you. Thank you for inspiring the guys in the Christian Dad Group and look forward to growing the community. Feel free, guys, like, share, comment, invite. But uh, let's build this community where we support each other. With that, we'll be able to kind of ripple effect and bring more people into a Christian dad lifestyle so that we all ultimately get to heaven and bring our families there. Amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure if you're uh, open to it, have you back again someday. Thanks, brother. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for answering the call that was placed in your heart and decided to watch as this grows and does real good and serves the Christian dads and the national and global communities. Yes, absolutely. And yes, you're right. Absolute call to my heart and uh, kind of a direct order from God to get this going. So I'm following through. Anytime I waver a bit, I got to <laughs> keep going. I got to yes. keep going. Even in the spite of adversity with many different things with this virus, I'm like, all right, I'm going to shift, adapt, and change, and I'm going to release this today mm -hmm. <laughs> compared to sending off to the editor. So, Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, and I'll let you get back to homeschooling. Thanks, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> All the best, my friend. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. Thank you guys for being a light. Shine that light out and let others see it. With you guys, part of this community, it helps me be accountable to you guys. It helps me be accountable to myself, be accountable to God and Jesus. I hope you appreciated this episode and picked up some great things. I hope you like the challenge and hope you can execute on that challenge this week. I ask of you, please subscribe, share the show with others. Join us inside of the Journey of a Christian Dad on Facebook, inside our private community. Share that community with others. Have your buddies join. Have other dads that are looking to grow in their faith, grow as spiritual leaders of their family. As we engage in our journey and be intentional with it, we can help others grow theirs as well. We thank you again for listening. We thank you for all your reviews. Look forward to reading a review of yours on a future show. So, dear God, Thanks for blessing all of us, and thanks for drawing us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have fun, guys.